Good morning and welcome to the second take of today's episode of Book Club with Caden Kelly, a podcast where we read books and uh, about philosophy and psychology and anthropology and biology and other topics to help us understand human nature and how to make good decisions and what are even good decisions and about God and all sorts of other topics. And this is the second take because I started about, went on for about five minutes thinking that I was, I started, I started with the chapter that we covered last week. I believe the first episode we covered chapters one and two, this, and last week we did three and four, although I thought I only got through chapter three last week. So starting this again, because we're going to start with chapter five, which is where we're at in real time. And uh, plan to get through at least two more chapters, right? So I'm not going to waste too much time. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, yeah, we're going to just jump right into part two of this book. And if you want to listen to the previous episodes, the previous chapters get all caught up, go to my blog, cadenkellysblog.wordpress.com, and you'll find links to uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts to get the podcasts. And if you want to join us live, we go live on Mondays. Usually it's been in the evenings the last few weeks, but I got to do it this morning because I've got, I'm busy this evening. So tonight, or rather tomorrow, this will go live on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. But if you want to check the other episodes, go to the blog, find the Spotify and the Apple Podcasts and Google, wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the previous episodes. So you will have the context as we start today, which is part two. There's more to morality than harm and fairness. Again, this is The Righteous Minds by Jonathan Haidt. The point of, uh, the, of part two is to discuss intuitions in much more depth, he says. Which leads us to chapter five, Beyond Weird Morality. Uh, on page 114, he goes through the... His intentions of this chapter. So I'm going to pull that up real quick. Um, I said that weird people, which remember weird is an acronym standing for Western, educated, industrial, rich, democratic societies. And I, I figured out who coined that term, but I can't remember his name. Um, I said weird people are individualist and generally non-weird people are more concerned about the whole of their society than the individual. Read the last paragraph on page 114. Part two of this book is about those additional concerns and virtues. It's about the second principle of moral psychology. There's more to morality than harm and fairness. I'm going to try to convince you that this principle is true descriptively. That is, as a portrait of the moralities we see when we look around the world. I'll set aside the question of whether any of these alternative moralities are really good, true, and justifiable. As an intuitionist, I believe it is a mistake to even raise the emotionally powerful question until we've, until we've calmed our elephants and cultivated some understanding of what such moralities are trying to accomplish. It's just too easy for our writers to build a case against every morality, political party, and religion that we don't like. So let's try to understand moral di diversity first before we judge other moralities. Which is, uh, and it's funny to say, because this morning I was reading 
um, one of my school assignments. I was reading uh, uh, in my in an anthropology class about about weddings in India, where this American student goes to India to study there or well, just to just to join field research. And the article was about arranged marriages. And the point of the article was, I haven't finished it, but the point of the article was how Western people think that arranged marriages is an insane violation of human rights or, or not even insane, but a violation of human rights. And that, and that, uh, how, how, how can a marriage succeed where, um, it's been arranged and you didn't even know the person before you meet them and marry them. And the whole point of the art, the point of the article is to paint is, is to illustrate why this practice exists in India and also why it's, it's culturally appropriate and popular and it's not wrong. It's just, it's just different. And again, I didn't finish it, so I didn't get to, re I didn't get to the conclusion, but the argument from the Indian people is Americans spend their whole lives meeting a bunch of people and uh, um, Indians, their parents spend their, spend their time seeking out a valid candidate for their son or daughter. And this, you know, this, it seems like, well, wouldn't a person, wouldn't that person get to know a person better if they know, wouldn't they know they like someone better than if, if they met them themselves and if their parents arranged it? And I guess there's some debate, debate on that, but the Indian culture says that uh, they agree that they're happier this way because their parents take the stress out of dating essentially from their kids and choose um, valid candidates. They don't just assign random people. They, they parents, because their whole reputation is on the line. The parents reputation, the family's name is on the line when choosing a candidate for, for their uh, child. Anyway, I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm getting into the weeds a little bit on it, but there are so many different ways that people live around the world, ways that are conflicting to Western ideology and society and culture and that doesn't mean they're wrong in my other anthropology class we discuss ethnocentrism versus cultural relative relativism and that is to say that ethnocentrism ethno, ethnocentrism is the uh, the belief that your culture is superior to that of every other culture ethnocentrism and cultural relativism is uh, that is the claim that every culture has specific or rather every just about everything in a culture serves a function. It has a purpose. So uh, just because we don't practice arranged marriages in the United States, for the most part, that doesn't make them wrong or immoral. And just because Indians do doesn't make it wrong and immoral. Right. And my claim in one of my anthropology classes or my concern is at what point is an opposing culture immoral or wrong objectively because just be, just because it's a different culture doesn't make it unequivocally correct or um, or okay a hundred percent of the time and I guess the easiest example is the uh, the treatment of 
gay people and transgender people in the Middle East. They're executed. It's not allowed. It's not tolerated. And is that okay just because it's their cultural cultural norm? It's relative to their culture? I think the obvious answer is no, it's not okay. So when does when do other societies intervene in cultural differences? Right? That's a good I think that's a fair question. Or or do we or do other cultures never intervene in other cultures? I mean, there's a sense of superiority that comes from saying what's right and wrong unanimously across the world, across all cultures. I mean, it, 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 it almost doesn't make sense to say that even the Middle East is wrong wholeheartedly about their decision to how, of how they treat uh, gay and trans people. Uh, not, not to say that it should be tolerated, but um, the the part of the discovery that came with the Indian marriages is uh, there is a there's a greater context that uh, that exists in in the society and even Height explains his experience in India. Uh, I think I talked about a little bit in previous episodes about families that families don't serve. Uh, well, there's just there's a hierarchy within families of patriarchy where females serve the males and females don't engage in conversation with other males. And it seems oppressive, but height explains the sense of of uh, value that this brings in their culture. And I, I, I think it was in chapter two where he or maybe chapter three where he went through this. But the point is that it, it is rel- relative. The cultures are relative. And I, I guess I'm just saying, when is it not okay? When is a culture's difference not okay? When, you know, and same for us in America. Just because we're the weird people, the Western, educated, industrial, rich, democratic society doesn't mean that all of our cultures, cultural norms are appropriate or quote unquote correct. So again, when, does, when do other countries intervene? I don't know. When do other cultures intervene? I don't know. But that's what we're doing here in part two of chapter five is we're going into further depth on um, intuitions. He's, he's going to try to describe this principle as true descriptively. That is as a portrait of the moralities we see when we look around the world. And the claim is there's more to morality than harm and fairness. So let's uh, let's keep going. There are three ethics or moral themes that everyone adheres to. They are autonomy which is making decisions for myself, community, which is making decisions for everyone around me, and divinity, which is making decisions for God. Autonomy, community, <laughs> and divinity. So these three these three themes take place all around the world. And I think yeah, if I were to speculate that us in the United States, we are more an autonomous society where we care more about the individual, I would say probably India is one that is more community based where the decisions uh, they care more about the decisions of the com- that in fact impact the community more than the individual. And then maybe communities like those in the Middle East care more about the decisions that affect their they care more about divinity than the community and the individual. I don't know. That's just a speculation, but that could that could that he's saying that there are three. There are these three ethics or themes, moral themes that all societies adhere to. 
on page 24, he sums up the div uh, divinity ethic. He says, the ethic of divinity lets us give voice to an inchoate. Is it inchoate? I-N-C-H-O-A-T-E. Yeah, I'm going to look it up real quick, though, because I don't know if I know. I don't know what that means. In. Oh, whoops. Tapping with one hand is hard. Inchoate definition. Inchoate. Inchoate. Thank you, Google speech. Just begun and not so and so not fully formed or developed. So it's fresh and not fully developed. So the ethic of divinity lets us give voice to inchoate feelings of elevation and degradation. Our sense of higher and lower. It gives us a way to condemn crass consumerism and mindless trivialized sexuality. We can understand long-standing laments about the spiritual emptiness of a consumer society in which everyone's mission is to satisfy their personal desires. Yeah, so, so cultures and communities that uh, support the divinity ethic or that, or that hold that at the helm of their society are doing so to support claims that they can't fully rationalize in the world or and to use it really to help control, um, as he says, um, spiritual emptiness. Oh, wait, no. Uh, as a way to control mass consumerism and mindless or trivialized sexuality. Okay. <clears throat> Let's keep going. Most people aren't shitty, I say. The reason there is division in politics and religion is because most people want to help others but have radically different ideas of how to do so. Yes. And then go to page 126. I've thought about this point so many times. And what, what makes politics so frustrating is there's is everybody has, well, okay. Just about everybody wants to do good. They want to help people. They want to be uh, advocates of things that are truthful and helpful for others. And that make that create the best society. Most people feel that way. Not everyone understands it that way. And I, I'm just, I'm, this is probably I might be in the minority with this position, but I think most people want to do good, want to help others, even people in politics, people that we think are corrupt. I'm not not to say that there isn't corruption in government or in religion. It obviously exists. But uh, and why I say obviously, I don't know if I I don't know why I, I you know, I don't know how to readily defend that. But politics and people in politics and religion, I think, are mostly good. At least, at least, maybe I'm optimistic about people's intentions. I want people to be good. I can't imagine a world or even a government, a, a, a society where an entire government is filled with corrupt people. That there's nobody in the government that wants to actually do good or help other people, or or, or even or even just uh, or just like produce good things. I don't know. It seems far fetched, but it could it could be true. I I don't have I really don't have much to support the claim, but that's my that's my perspective. I think most people are good in politics and in religion and even in like even in corporations, which might be the 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 biggest stretch of them all because don't corporations have like a the primary focus to uh you know, to earn wealth and to to build their company and yeah, to become wealthy and to, to support the shareholders and whatever. But I really think that the people in corporations are mostly good. I don't know. 
It's a claim. It's my claim. He says on page 126, liberalism, and we're, and we're still on this point, liberalism seems so obviously ethical. Liberals matched for peace, workers' rights, civil rights, and secularism. The Republican Party was, as we saw it, the party of war, big business, racism, and evangelical Christianity. I could not understand how any thinking person would voluntarily embrace the party of evil. And so I and my fellow liberals looked for psychological explanations of conservatism, but not liberalism. We supported liberal policies because we saw the world clearly and wanted to help people. But they supported conservative policies out of pure self-interest, like lower my taxes. Or thinly veiled racism, stop, uh, like stop funding welfare programs for minorities. We never considered the possibility that there were alternative moral worlds in which reducing harm and increasing fairness were not the main goals. And if we could not imagine other moralities, then we could not believe that conservatives were as sincere in their moral beliefs as we are in ours. I said that this is Haidt's epiphany, that the liberal left is not the obvious only moral choice. Again, if you like, let me grab this. A lot of, I think there's lots of people that on both sides of the political spectrum or the political aisle will, will say that they're Republican because their, their Democratic constituents don't see the world clearly and vice versa. But the, uh, I think the truth is, and I think the point that he's making here is, oh, I got a text, got to call this. Or I'm sorry, I'm going to mute this. Yeah, so um, the point of this chapter and the point that I'm trying to make is uh, just like those people in India with arranged marriages where it's, it's not they're not doing it because they're these because India is this immoral country looking looking to to sabotage their children and all their marriages. They believe that what they're doing is right. Uh, they believe that, and, and they have. They probably have decades of experience to support that their society or that this system uh, supports their society and, and leads to well the well-being of, of individuals or the community or divinity. Right. It's it, it, whatever the whatever the theme is of the society. And uh, and same thing happens with our politics in the in the United States. I we see opposing political and religious views as the enemy when in fact they are almost almost uh entirely different ways to achieve good or to do good and this is i've i've found this i found this with members of my own family and friends one thing that i'm so interested in when discussing is not necessarily advocating for a specific political or religious ideology but to suggest that maybe their perspective isn't perfect to suggest that they are there there are other pieces to the puzzle of of you could say of of uh, the immigration crisis or the war in ukraine or the war in gaza or did i say immigration already or racism or taxes or all of the problems Abortion, I think I've repeated a couple of them twice. And I don't care because the uh, because I think you get what I'm trying to say. There are so many different ways to view the problem, but the but the foundation of what we're concerned about is what influences our 
decisions and our behavior and our thinking processes. So we could break down all, all of all of the problems and figure out exactly what is the most desirable outcome for each person and political party. And it just changes. It's different for it's different for a lot of different people, unfortunately. And that's what makes it so tough. That's why we can't agree on certain things. That's why that's that's why it's hard. That's why politics and religion are hard. But this is what's so fascinating is I really think that and what he's suggesting is neither political party or ideology or really either any culture has it entirely right. They just have it for what works, what works for their group. But people are, people get defensive of their ideologies. People don't like to be proven wrong. They don't like to be, they don't like to be, they don't like hearing that what they believe or what they support is not, it could be a fabrication of reality and, uh, and their justifications are, based in what's the opposite of reality super superstition so um and i was that way when i was a religious person it was hard it's really hard to swallow that my perspective on reality is has has been distorted and it is probably in some instances entirely not true and uh and now as you know as a as a claimed agnostic atheist I don't I still don't know what reality is, but that's what I'm trying to seek is the truest nature of reality. I don't want to hold firmly to an ideology that is loosely based or that is not entirely founded in reality. And um, sci- people are well, if people say I hear in debates all the time that people people suggest, well, if you don't if you don't believe in religion, then you believe and if you believe in science, then you're faith is in science and to some extent that's true because there because some things like the big bang theory aren't conclusively true they aren't it isn't a hundred percent positively true a lot of things in science are probably most things in science aren't positively true they are but but here's the big but they are supported by mountains of evidence some more than others some less than others so something like the Big Bang isn't just isn't just pulled out of thin air. It's supported by research and experiments and observation, the scientific method and whatever. And with all of that data, scientists can draw certain conclusions and say it appears by the data that we've observed and that we've gathered through our, through our research that the origin of the universe is the Big Bang. It's not conclusive. It's not 100% certain, but this is what the data now suggests, what the best evidence suggests. And the same thing the same thing we have this we have similar processes for things like gravity and uh f- for evolution or rather for the the theory of evolution by natural selection to be specific. It's it's it is apparent that evolution happens when you study this is how I'm trying to integrate my school, my scholastic enterprise with my podcast now is when I took my last anthropology class last semester, biological anthropology, examine how evolution literally occurs and uh, through experiments done with fruit flies where uh, you take a specific species of fruit fly and you you manipulate their environment slightly and because the 
reproduction rate of fruit flies is so high. It's so quick. The turnaround is so quick. You can uh, I, like you can see changes in genetic and their and fruit flies genes within two weeks uh, as you manipulate or change their environment and uh, other genes become favored in new environments. That's that's like the basis of evolution is it's it's essentially survival of the fittest, right? That those organisms that are best suited for an environment are more likely to survive and reproduce than others. So this is demonstrated and observed in fruit flies and the fruit flies is a great example because of that quick turnaround rate. But if you you can see it in every other organism and usually the organisms that have the higher the fat, the quicker turnaround, the quicker reproduction rate the quicker you can observe the evolution of the organism. So again, the point, the point I'm making is these, uh, these species and evolution, not these species, but evolution, the theory of evolution by natural selection is, is a, is a theory meaning that it's been tested and scrutinized and produces similar results and so it's valid and it's reliable it's not a hundred percent certain but it's valid and reliable until new research or new data comes up that is also reliable that that will that could change or influence the the current theory of evolution by natural selection so lots of things aren't set in stone most things aren't set in stone but they have a greater basis of of understanding of our reality than simple belief in religion or in theology does faith faith is a it is um a valuable trait in some regards um like uh, a good example of a good example of faith is probably faith that you know faith in your partner that they love you faith in your parents that they'll look always look after you uh, there's nothing to suggest that they, that your partner will always love you, but you can believe you can have faith that if you commit to them and they commit to you, that they will support you and love you. Um. So I think instance I think that's it's kind of different than hope, right? The when I my Mormon vernacular would suggest that hope is is um is believing that something will occur without without any ability to influence the outcome. And one thing that I hope for is that there is life after death and that I could continue my relationships with the people that I love and establish new relationships and continue, continue to live in some regard. I hope that that's the case, but I don't believe that there's anything I can do to influence that outcome. Whereas faith is the same thing where I, I, I believe that, um, is, is belief in like my partner loving me, but there is something that I can do to influence that. If I love my partner back, if I support and respect my partner, then there's a greater chance that my partner will love me back and, 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 or just love me at all. So that's, that's a little distinction of hope and faith to me. And, um, so faith is important in some regards in, in, in instances and wow in instances like this but it does not lead to it doesn't lead to supported claims of reality so when you have faith that 
that God created the universe or that even that God was the the first influence on the universe and he he initiated the big bang you can you can have faith that that occurred or rather you can hope that that occurred but there's nothing that you can do to support that claim it's it's it is untestable with the current methods that we have the current tools of research that we have we can't test nobody can test supernatural phenomena so you can hope that that's the case, but there's no there's no way to influence that or to demonstrate that that's the case. I'm getting I'm getting way into the weeds. I think I I think I pointed out some important things though in that conversation. So let's get back to the matter at hand. We're talking about yeah, people aren't shitty. People are um, mostly good, I think, and it is just our it's our understanding of reality that influence what we think is best for the world and why people are so up in arms about defending their worldview. Let's keep going. He says his experience in India. Okay. So I never got to it. So I spoiled it. So here we go. His experience in India, exploring the divinity ethic opened his mind up to how ideas different from the liberal left are not shitty. Read this on one twenty-seven, and a footnote and a quote on the next page. Okay. So this is from the book. This is Jonathan Haidt. I had escaped from my prior partisan mindset, rejection first, ask rhetorical questions later, and began to think about liberal and conservative policies as manifestations of deeply conflicting but equally heartfelt visions of the good society. And he says in the footnotes on 198, that long-standing ideological struggles almost invariably involve people who are pursuing a moral vision in which they believe passionately and sincerely. I'll read that again. Long-standing ideological struggles almost invariably involve people who are pursuing a moral vision in which they believe passionately and sincerely. Which made me think of, I wrote in the margins, does this apply to Hitler? Because as you might recall, I'm still listening to now slowly since the semester has started, but I'm still listening to that 20 or 30 hour podcast series about Hitler's life and his rise and fall from power in Germany. And it seems to me, and I, I think the, I think the, the writer of the series has done a really good job of portraying Hitler genuinely, although uh, he, they emphasize strongly his anti-Semitic rhetoric from the beginning. Uh, uh, Hitler as an anti-Semite fr from his from early in his life, but they don't discuss much of what he says or does early in his life. They just repeat that he is strongly anti-Semitic or that he that he behaves strong uh, towards Jews uh, very very poorly, but they don't. They don't they don't go much in, into much depth. I wish they would have. I think it because what it, the, the impression that it's left on me is that Hitler genuinely genuinely believes that what he's doing, what he believes is right. What he what he believes for the German nation is right and good and the outcome is good and moral. And as we know, it's it led to the death of millions of people and which we can conclusively say is not good. 
a genocide and mass extinction extinction of a race is not good. It is not a good thing. So, but it has made me wonder through the whole series, um, how much he believed that what he was doing was right and good, and how much is he to blame for it, right? How much? How if he if he believed that what he was doing was good, just like how anyone any politician in the United States believes that what they're doing is good, then how much can we how much can we blame Hitler like we can blame any other politician? This might be this might be highly contentious. Uh, but you know, I, I D G A F. I want to talk about. It. I think it's an important thing to talk about. How how much is Hitler? You know, how much of his character is actually evil? Uh, because last semester I read I read a, a novel. It was called um, Fuck. What was it called? It was for my history class. I could pull it up. Let me just pull it up really quick. It's for my history class. The the textbook for the class was this book. That's a super woke. Is it is a pretty super woke book about American history. The book is called A People's History of the United States by Jeff Zinn. And it explores how people have been oppressed uh uh how especially Americans because it's an American history book how Americans have been oppressed and oppressing other people since the since its foundation since since those first English uh, voyages to Central America um, yeah I'm, but but again like the, the the English colonization of other countries was done um, you know maybe not with all of the best intentions, but what they, but you know, with, with some good intentions, I don't know. I, I'm getting, I'm, I'm, I'm probably canceling myself by talking about this, but I think it's important to talk about is how is like, what, what's the line of what is okay versus today and in other cultures versus what is, was okay in the past in several different cultures and contexts. And what does it mean that anything is okay at all? Anyway, what is okay? What is good or what is moral and what are what are ethics, right? This is it's such it's such an interesting conversation to me. People have people's behavior has changed and their attitudes towards other people has changed so much. Uh, it's changed so much over thousands of years of of human of human existence. So uh, there was one more quote to read on this point on the next page. There is a researcher, scientist, his last name is Schweder, S-H-W-E-D-E-R, Schweder, Schweder, and I don't know, I don't see his first name, but Schweder said in 1991, he wrote in 1991, he says, yet the conceptions held by others are available to us. In the sense that when we truly understand their conception of things, we come to realize possibilities latent within our own rationality. And those ways of conceiving of those of things become salient for us for the first time or once again. In other words, there is no homogenous backcloth to our world. We are multiple from the start. We are no... There is no homogenous backcloth 
to our world. There, we are not all cut from the same cloth. We are all different. All humans are different. And when we are raised and exist in different contexts and are subjected to different cultures, we will learn to behave and think and act differently. And is dif does that mean that those difference are good, differences are good inherently or bad inherently? Can they be bad inherently? It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating thing to consider. So that's, that's uh, in, in sum for this chapter, I say that this chapter seemed to me to be Heights waking up. He even uses the red pill, blue pill uh, analogy from the Matrix in a real life scenario. It seems as if he was pretty stern, a pretty stern woke leftist in his early adulthood and his trip to India to learn about the divinity ethic revealed all of the points we mentioned in this chapter that weird societies, pe people that are Western, educated, industrial, rich and democratic are the moral outliers in the world. Ethics based in community and divinity are prevalent throughout the world where autonomy is dominant in the United States and in Western societies. He also realized how conservatives aren't evil, racist, sexist, that the left wouldn't make you believe. They embody more of these community and divinity ethics with sincere intent to improve the world and well-being. So let that sink in while I take some water real quick. We are, uh, we live in a world with so many different perspectives and ways to live and as a person and me an individual who uh who's thought of himself as a right-winged person who has recently shifted more central or left-winging left-leaning i can observe or i can appreciate that people on the right aren't evil and people are on the left aren't evil most of them are are really trying to do good it is their perspective that that changes um the dynamic of the situation it, which influences how other people view them if you're a right-leaning person as i mentioned you are more likely to to favor divinity and uh community over autonomy and individuality and left-leaning people are the opposite left-leaning people will favor autonomy over divinity and uh, community generally so that and that's what influences their claims and the decisions that they make as politicians to, that for how the world should function so take all of that into consideration as we move on to the next chapter chapter six taste buds of the righteous mind and this chapter is short I only have three points on this chapter, but it's the last one until we're all caught up. Once school starts, dude, it is so hard to, to get through the books that I'm reading personally. So next week, I don't know if I hope that I have some more of this to read for you next week. But we'll see. Chapter six, taste buds of the righteous mind. Everyone has the same taste receptors, yet flavor preference varies amongst everyone. And, the, and morality works the same way. Read page 132-33. Just knowing that everyone has sweetness receptors can't tell you why one person prefers Thai food to Mexican or why hardly anyone stirs sugar into beer 
It takes a lot of additional work to connect the universal taste receptors to the specific things that a particular person eats and drinks. In this chapter and the next two, I'll develop the analogy that the righteous mind is like a tongue with six taste receptors. In this analogy, morality is like cuisine. It's a cultural construction influenced by, by accidents of environment and history, but it's not so flexible that anything goes. You can't have a cuisine based on tree bark, nor can you have one based primarily on bitter tastes. Cuisines vary, but they all must please tongues equipped with the same five taste receptors. Moral matrices vary, but they all must please righteous minds equipped with the same six social receptors. And then I said, everyone has the same taste receptors, yet flavor preference varies amongst everyone. Morality is the same. And that's the point that I made in the in my phone notes. I read that twice. Okay, yes, it's a, he uses lots of analogies, which is awesome because it helps people. It helps uh, lay people like me understand these tricky concepts. I think Height's a really good writer. He writes he writes really profound things in really simple terms, so that most people can understand them. If you write really really tricky, like. Jordan Peterson, I think Jordan, I really think Jordan Peterson, and I'm so glad uh, to hear Richard Dawkins say the same thing about Jordan Peterson, how he uses really fancy language to appear smart, smarter than he is, or to make matters more complex than they are. And the best example is when someone asks Peterson, did Jesus Christ literally resurrect? And Jordan Peterson, he'll need two days to respond to that properly. Uh, is a fa is a is a it it, it, it it to me it demonstrates that he's either either he's the most brilliant mind alive in the public eye, or he's he is blowing concepts way out of proportion. And that's how I felt when I read his book, his uh, the uh, Twelve Lessons for Life. Too much, too much, too many words, too much going on in that, in that book. And I like Peterson. I like, I like a lot of his philosophy. I don't like all of his philosophy, but I like a lot of it. I just think that he himself, um, he, he's kind of, he kind of sucks at keeping things simple. He breaks, he, he makes things way too complex. And again, maybe it's, maybe it's just the nature of his really, intuitive his really smart brain or or he's or he's not as intelligent as we suspect and he's making things way too complicated i don't know i don't know that might be too critical of me to say but i've said it and now it's out there uh and that's what i really like about jonathan height i think his cons the concepts are really easy to grasp for me but not too gra too difficult that um, sorry I I lost where I was in my book and then I got distracted. He writes them really well and I like his analogies. Analogies his analogies make things much easier to understand. Okay. So I said that Hume correctly argues that morality is a result of personal taste rather than pure reason or logic. 
And Haidt says to, uh, to support this, he says, philosophers who tried to reason their way out of moral truth without looking at human nature were no better than theologists who thought they could find moral truths revealed in sacred texts. He says later on, moral judgment is a kind of perception, a moral science, and moral science should begin with a careful study of the moral taste receptors. You can't possibly deduce the list of five taste receptors by pure reasoning, nor should you search for it in scripture. There's nothing transcendental about them. You've got to examine tongues. I said morality is a result of personal taste rather than pure reason or logic. Again, we're all, there's no back cloth that all humanity is cut from, as we read in that quote by Schroeder, Schweder, whatever. We are, uh, we're not all cut from the same cloth. We're all raised, we all are, are raised in different contexts and believe in different things, but we all have the same taste receptors. So how, how is it that we all have the same taste receptors, but we come to come to believe in different things? Very good question. Uh, he gets more into that in the next chapter, which again, I, I'm, I'm like three quarters of the way through. I didn't quite finish it, unfortunately. Um, and that's again, what, what the rest of a lot of part two of this book is about. We're is examining how we can have the same taste receptors. We have the same responses to the metaphorical food of morality, yet we come to experience them differently and believe different things about these experiences. The last point I made in this chapter, as I said, he proposes there are five different foundations around which we build our morals. He calls this moral foundations theory. He says they found these moral foundations by first writing extensively about adaptive challenges found across cultures. Uh, and then read the moral foundations and their adaptive challenges on page 146. Oh, yes, I see. Okay, so yeah, he... I'll read these in a second. Yeah, he and colleagues examine um, yeah, how people respond and react to different moral situations across several different cultures and contexts. Um, and it was through these writings, through this, uh, through this research that he develops moral foundations theory. And remember what we said about theory. It's not theory is not just an idea that's that's blind. It's not based on faith, but theories, scientific theories are ideas that are supported by the scientific method, by research and observation and experimentation and critical scrutiny and re peer re and peer review. Theories are the best understanding that we have of a specific topic. So it's they're not 100% claims or factual because there could be evidence or uh yeah there could be evidence that arises through more scrutiny and ex experimentation that leads to different results so it's kind of an open-ended fact it's the way that we understand the world right now with the information that we have so it's anyway so through his experimentation um he found these five, and there's a sixth. Uh, there's a sixth moral that that um, exists throughout all most the, uh, throughout the cultures and contexts that he examined. But the uh, the sixth will be examined in the next chapter or later on in the book. 
For now, he goes through five. Five of the theories. Care and harm. Fairness, or uh, I should say care or harm. Care or harm is the first. Fairness or cheating. Loyalty or betrayal. Authority or subversion. And sanctity versus degradation. Uh, the, yeah. So I wanted to read the adaptive challenges too. Okay. So adaptive adaptive challenges they are essentially the things that people experience in their cultures that lead to these lead to this uh, this uh, moral foundation. So an adaptive challenge for care or harm is the protect is to care or and protect for children. Um there are things that trigger this how this is expressed characteristically through emotions. Yeah. This is I'm I'm having a hard time explaining this cuz I mean what I'm given in the in the book is a box. It's a you know it's if you're looking at the video it's a box with the five morals across the top with other comments down the bottom that create, you know, a box with like a, a, a diagram. So um, adaptive challenges for care and harm are protect and care for children. Adaptive challenges for fairness and cheating is reap benefits of two-way partnerships. For loyalty and betrayal, it's the form of form cohesive coalitions. For authority and subversion, it's for beneficial relationships within hierarchies. And for sanctity and degradation, it's avoid contaminate contaminations. All right. Yeah, and you know what? Chapter 7, like I said, I've, I'm starting it, but I haven't finished it. Chapter 7 examines each of these in great depth, in much more depth. So the, the, the summary of this chapter... We all have taste receptors. Um, more, uh, I'll say in his words, morality is like taste in many ways, an analogy made long ago by Hume and Mencius. Deontology and utilitarianism are one receptor moralities that are likely to appeal most strongly to people who are high on systemizing and low on empathizing. Hume's pluralist sentiment sen Pluralist, sentimentalist, and naturalist approach to ethics is more promising than utilitarianism or deontology for modern moral psychology. As a first step in reasoning Hume's project, we should try to identify the taste receptors of the righteous mind. Modularity can help us think about innate receptors and how they produce a variety of initial perceptions that get developed in cultural vari variable ways, culturally variable ways. And the, the final point is five. There are five good candidates for being taste receptors of the righteous mind. They are care, fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. Okay, that'll wrap up our discussion today. A little early uh, of where we're at in the righteous mind. There's just, it's so good to me. It's so good. I could get through it quicker, but I don't give a, I don't give a fuck. It's so good. Uh, I, I love this conversation so much about about morality and ethics in general and how uh, giving uh, giving us the best understanding of morality and ethics in our world, in our cultures and contexts, 
uh, in our societies, in our groups, in groups and out groups, why politics and religion are so difficult for people. Um, all of it. And again, reading it, sitting down on my couch and reading it and taking notes is far more. What's the right word? Insightful than listening to it on an audiobook in my car or when I'm working. I'm just getting so much more meat out of it when I sit down and read it. So I love it. I love the I love the book so far and I hope you're loving the episodes. I hope they're providing some context to the conversation, giving you a greater insight of morality with uh when it exists in context of religion and politics. That's the whole point of the book. We're going to continue this hopefully next week. Hopefully I have more for you next week. Otherwise, I'll have something else for you next week. I'll have something. I'll be here. So if you want to join me live, you know where to go. My blog, kadenkellysblog.wordpress.com. Go to the Facebook, the YouTube, the Twitch, where we're streaming. Follow, subscribe, turn on your notifications, whatever it is, so that you get buzzed when we go live so you can join us live. Get it first. Get the mess ups. Get the first take. Get all the good stuff. Uh, and then you can uh, otherwise catch me on Spotify and on uh, – oh, my – camera is freezing now i hope that's not gonna affect the audio because that's all we really need i'm gonna wrap this up before this gets too chaotic thanks for tuning in we'll see you next week have a great day everybody